the evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Good afternoon, it's just past the midday mark and we are live from the Chai FM studios here in Johannesburg. It is the last Monday of 2019 and what a year it's been. We're going to be chatting just now to Josias Naidu and we'll be chatting a little bit about the year in review along with some other very interesting topics, especially pertaining to that of challenges faced by healthcare practitioners in South Africa. For our Jewish listeners, I'd love to wish you a um, great Hanukkah. I hope that you had time spent with the family. And to our Christian listeners, we hope you had a very Merry Christmas. Unfortunately for people of faith in America, it's been a very traumatic weekend with um, two people losing their lives in a in an attack on a Christian church in Texas. And of course, that anti-Semitic attack that took place just outside New York where five people were injured. It is so sad to see people of faith being targeted worldwide. And um, it's something that really needs to be addressed because we cannot continue like this. The world as it stands has become a global village, yet we seem to be growing further and further apart each and every year. If you need to talk, if you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed or desperate during this uh, period of time, you should contact the, the 24-hour High FM helpline. It's toll-free. It's 800 That number again is 800 some sad news coming through for our community. Um, one of our listeners, Harold Boss, lost his daughter this weekend. Um, they're very well known in the community. Um, Ariella was, was a, a young lady that, that everybody knew and everybody liked. And unfortunately, she was tragically taken in a car accident. So we'd like to extend our, our heartfelt condolences to the Boss family, as well as wishing the family a long life. I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show, not necessarily those of Chai FM. IFM has signed a code of conduct that is enforced by the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Under the code, we are committed to giving news that is accurate, comment that is fair, and programming that is not harmful to children, does not amount to hate speech, or the description of gratuitous violence or explicit sex. If you think we are not living up to that code, then you can inform the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Direct any complaints in writing to the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa, at P.O. Box 412365, Craig Hall, 2024. That's the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. P.O. Box 412365, Craig Hall, 2024. Or send an email to bccsa at nabsa.co.za. For more information, please visit www.bccsa.co.za. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief, broadcasting live on 101.9 FM in Johannesburg and worldwide on highfm.com. If I sound a little bit strange, it's because I'm recovering from what I regard a boomerang flu. Myself and the wife have had this come and go the last two weeks. It seems to have reached the final stages, so let's hope that I see the new year in nice and healthy. Talking about health, my guest today is a healthcare activist. Um, Josias Naidu, at a glittering event this past Saturday, won a, the, one of the awards at the 2019 Influential Man Awards. It was held at a glittering event in Durban. Josias, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Chad. Just as before we get down to um, the year in review 2020 and your work as a as a healthcare activist, but I take this opportunity to congratulate you on your award on Saturday night. Tell us a little bit more about the award. The award was hosted by um, a company called Big M Productions in KZN. They decided to put together a, a, some form of recognition for people who have made an impact in society. So not only for healthcare, there's, there were individuals who were nominated from various sectors, um, and people got to vote for each candidate, and I was lucky enough to be selected and uh, shortlisted and eventually uh, received one of the few awards for Influential Man of the Year 2019. Um, and it was good because sometimes uh, people do a lot of things in community and you don't always get the recognition and, and your your story doesn't always get told. And I think this was a very nice platform for people to hear about all the good that some of the individuals are doing in, in, in our communities. I think it is very important. South Africa has a very strong civic society. We've got very strong NPOs, NGOs, Section 21 organizations that are trying to make a difference. Um, and there are so many different platforms out there. South Africa is an emerging um, economy. We have a young democracy and we have multiple challenges. And if we don't have civil activists taking up the challenge, we're not going to further our young democracy, and we're not going to be able to empower the people at large. Now, you've chosen a very interesting um, area to, to, to be an activist. Um, you studied um, healthcare, in particular audiology, but you also studied um, the ethics and the law of healthcare in South Africa. Tell us a little bit about healthcare in South Africa as it presently stands with regards to the haves and the have-nots. Unfortunately, South Africa's, South Africa's health system isn't a new structure. It's something that, that stems from the pre-democracy era. It's something that's been structured in, in such a way that we have a, a, a section that caters for those of affluence and a section that caters for those that are, are not as affluent. And unfortunately, with, with the economy the way it is, with our increasing um, population, the public sector seems to have been systematically unfunded or defunded, some people say, and hasn't been able to keep up with the population growth. That's probably one of the reasons why we've seen a lot of the, the breakage in, in public health sector. We, we, we do not have capacity for the number of people that the public health services caters for. On the other side of the, the system, we've got the private health sector, which caters for a very small percentage of the population. Uh, people say, you know what, it's, it's funded by individuals, so it's okay that they have a different quality of care. Um, but personally, I think, you know what, um, healthcare is a right, and healthcare should be given equally regardless of how much of money you have or how much money you earn or which area you live in. And if we can find a way to integrate the, the resources of the public, uh, the resources of the private sector so that we can better distribute it so that people in the public sector can also have access to it, 
um, under what we're now proposing a universal health coverage type of model, which we call the NHI, um, I think we'll be able to more equitably disperse healthcare um, to people from all walks of life. You mentioned a couple of, of very important points. The one being that the public sector healthcare have not been able to keep up with the population growth that we've experienced in South Africa. And that is a major issue. Another issue that you've raised is the fact that there is healthcare available, but only to a few. And those are those with money. So the South African government has proposed the NHI. But when one reads about the NHI, we only seem to read about the doom and gloom of how negative it can be. And this is strange to us. We've seen something similar happen in America with Obamacare. We've seen in the UK where national health care has worked. We've seen in places like Canada where it's worked. And, of course, in the Scandinavian countries where, much like South Africa, they've determined that as a right – the best health care will be given free of charge to the people of that of those particular countries. Why is it such a problem in South Africa, and why are we currently playing catch-up? I think at this stage in time, we, we've left it for too long. Universal health coverage was talked about at the birth of democracy. It was a concept that was proposed in 1993, 1994. Um, the model was always supposed to be something that our democratic country would run with. But due to whatever other implementation issues, it's been pushed 25 years. And that's one of the reasons why it's it's going to take us a little while to play catch-up. The second thing is that, unfortunately, we have a population that um, includes a lot of unemployed people, so we don't have a huge tax base to fund the the implementation of national health. Um, and then one of the big issues that the media always and, and some political parties tend to, to bring up is the fact that corruption tends to find its way into every state-run entity. Now, as long as those three factors are at play, it does make implementing something as big as national uh, health insurance a little bit more difficult. Um, As compared to the Scandinavian countries, we have a much bigger population to cater for. We have much poorer infrastructure. So when we start to think outside of the cities, how do you implement a, a universal health coverage model in a very deep rural setting where you have fairly large population, but you have very few professionals, you have very little um, infrastructure in terms of buildings, in terms of roads, in terms of um, technology. And those are the type of things that we need to, to consider and, and understand as to why the, the, the implementation of NHI will, will not be as quick as, as some people would like and would also be pretty labor-intensive until we get it to the point that all people are covered and that all people are able to access care. And when we say all people, it's all citizens of South Africa, even some of the foreign nationals, even some of the people that may be here um, without the correct documentation. Um, And those are things we need to factor in in terms of costing because we don't have a number to, to quantify the number of undocumented uh, people living in the country 
and we need to create a system that not only caters for our our uh, people but for those people that are within the country as well. We're talking to Josias Naidu, a healthcare activist, about the state of healthcare in South Africa. When we come back, we're going to cut to the reality of healthcare in South Africa, and we're going to talk about the profit margins and how that drives healthcare in South Africa. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. It's the 30th of December 2019. It's the last Monday we're going to spend together this year. But I can guarantee you 2020 is going to be as interesting as 2019 was. And I, for one, am looking so forward to 2020 because the foundation has been laid in 2019 for 2020 to be a year where we can see fraud and corruption being fought, not just by the private sector, but by the public sector as well, as well as the emergence of multiple public-private partnerships. Today I'm chatting to Josias Naidu about the state of healthcare in South Africa. And before we went to the break, I said I want to talk about profit margins. And this is something that I think really needs to be discussed. When one looks at the price of medicine landed um, by the by the manufacturers of those medicines, and one looks at the costs of those medicines, and then when one looks at generics or medicine that's produced, say for example in India, such as a ARVs and, and other such medications, one can see the profit margins. When one looks at healthcare in any, any of the so-called developed countries in the world, the Western countries, one can listen to the arguments that are now currently being made by Boris Johnson's government in um, the United Kingdom as well as by Donald Trump's government in, in the United States that are very opposed to universal healthcare. And for me, that can only mean one thing. It can only mean that these capitalist countries are reliant on the profits that are made by these huge conglomerates in the healthcare sector. And it's a frightening thing to think about because this is people whose health and lives that we, we, we are talking about. And just as maybe I'm being a little bit overly dramatic, perhaps I don't have a full understanding, but is money one of the biggest factors um, that drives private healthcare? Unfortunately, in South Africa, healthcare has been commodified. Every step of the way in terms of private healthcare is commodified and belongs to certain companies that monopolize the, the sector. Um, whether their, their true intent is to purely make profit or not, I can't speculate, but if we, if we, if we look at the way uh, capitalism works and the way some of these monopolies operate, and the profits that these companies uh, post, the bonuses that they pay their executives, I think it's safe to say that profit drives uh, the cost of healthcare. When one looks at the Scandinavian countries, I know it's a poor example because you've already highlighted the fact that they, they their numbers are far smaller and they're a far more advanced society. But when one talks about... Um, the social impact of healthcare, etc. People always equate having universal healthcare with regressing and going towards a form of socialism and, at worst, communism. Yet, democracy, capitalism, and socialism seem to abide quite well in those Scandinavian countries, in Canada, and up until now in places like the United Kingdom, Germany, and other countries. Why can't we have a national health care and still have the input from the private sector? And I think that's where, where some of the uh, information that we get given is, is to blame. Um, 
the concept of universal health coverage and NHI in South Africa is not for the state to own health care. Um, private sector will still be allowed to run independently. Private practitioners will still be run independently. Um, the, the NHI system is simply a funding tool, very similar to the managed care medical scheme options that you have, where people contract to, for example, uh, Discovery Key Care Network. A, a GP would contract to that network, and patients would be able to access their service of that GP through that network. And, and all that network provides is the middleman system between patient and practitioner, and that system is the funding system, and that's what NHI is. NHI will simply provide payment for services rendered. The state will have no direct control of how that practitioner conducts himself. The state will have no... Um, the, the practitioners will remain autonomous, and that's that's the issue that's not being clearly discussed in the media, and it it, it it's giving patients and people the, the, the idea that the state is going to monopolize healthcare. Uh, the only thing that the state will, will try to do is to use bulk buying power to try and keep the price of healthcare uh, down, but all other services will be individually rendered. Hospitals will be individually billing the NHI. Um, radiology will be individually billing the, the, the NHI, obviously uh, uh, prescribed tariffs so that the, the, the overall cost comes down, but the state will not be employing and owning and controlling healthcare. So just as you mentioned earlier in the show that one of the greatest concerns about the NHI would be corruption, etc. My concern as a taxpayer is that when one looks at the current fiscal status of our country, we have a, a tax base of between 5 and 10% of the population. This last financial year, only 25 companies, 25% rather of companies were able to pay tax in terms of profits, etc. 75% of companies either broke even or, or showed a loss. So the average person is thinking to themselves, how is the NHI going to be able to fund so much of a population? Where is that funding actually going to come from? And does it mean that what I would normally contribute towards my medical aid, I'm now contributing towards a national um, health care plan that will enable others to benefit from me paying and me being a minority in terms of this paying base? Yes and no. I think those that, that already uh, pay tax already subsidize those that don't, um, not only in NHI, across the board. That's how every country runs. Uh, taxpayers fund the government. Um, so that that's not something unique to, to the NHI, and that's not something that's going to change. Uh, however, international standards suggest that most countries spend about 4% of GDP on healthcare. South Africa already spends in excess of 4%, I think it's 5 point something percent on, on, of GDP on healthcare. So we're already spending more than typical countries or countries similar to our, ourselves. So in terms of funding it, the capacity is there. Um, when we look at the money that's being pumped into the private sector, if we restructure that, if we 
if we look at um, re- restructuring the um, health tax breaks, if we look at restructuring funding that the state pays for state employees to be on private medical schemes, if we start to divert all of those funds into a national pool, if we start to use the national buying power to drive the cost of healthcare downwards, we should be able to to very effectively fund NHI. Just as apart from being a healthcare activist, being a practicing healthcare practitioner, you're also the chair of a Gauteng organization that represents um, healthcare professionals. Tell us a little bit more about that organization. Okay, uh, we, we're called the National Healthcare Professionals Association. So we represent professions across the sector. So anyone that's registered with the Health Professional Council of South Africa can become a registered member of our association. Um, and we champion one for the rights of practitioners in this country, both in the public and private sector. We fight for uh, proper employment uh, benefits and proper employment conditions for people, in, especially in public sector. Um, we champion for the equality in terms of uh, private sector, so issues that relate to racial profiling that we've seen with uh, medical schemes, um, issues with uh, designated service providers that keep certain smaller companies out of the healthcare sector. Um, and recently we've been, uh, I wouldn't say driving, but we're definitely pushing for the Section 59 inquiry through the Council for Medical Schemes, which will hopefully yield results that help to break the racial segregation in the private health sector. It's hard to believe that after all these years, there would still be racism in such a important sector. When we come back from the break, we're going to be talking more about this, especially um, the Section 59 inquiry you spoke about. Perhaps you'll be able to enlighten our listeners more about that and the challenges that are faced by healthcare practitioners in South Africa. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We've just been through Hanukkah and Christmas. We're now about to go into the new year. And it can be overwhelming for some. So if you're stressed or desperate and you need to talk to somebody, always remember that 11.9 High FM has a 24-hour helpline. You can call toll-free on 0800 242436. You can find us on Facebook, Chai FM Helpline. You can find us on Twitter, Chai FM Helpline. Or if you can't call us, you can WhatsApp us on 065-635-9508. Remember, there's always somebody listening. You need to talk, phone in, 0800-242436. We've been chatting about something that impacts on every single South African's lives, and that's healthcare in South Africa. We've spoken about the NHI. We've spoken about the challenges facing our country in respect of having universal health care. But I now want to talk about the industry as a whole. Just as you represent a number of um, organizations, individuals through um, one centralized organization that represents healthcare practitioners in South Africa. And before we went to break, you said one of the challenges facing certain healthcare practitioners in South Africa is racism. And that comes as a surprise to somebody who, who is so ecstatic about the fact that we've come through such a trying time in our history. To hear that there's still racism, especially in such a professional industry, comes as complete and utter shock. So when you talk about racism, what are you talking about? 
What we found in the recent uh, past is that practitioners have been complaining that they've been audited forensically and and desktop audits and withholding of payments from uh, the medical aid funders or medical schemes. Uh, and once once all the numbers started coming in and all the complaints started coming in, we started to find that there's a there's a pattern. One hundred percent of the complaints were people of color. We 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 found very little evidence to 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 support the fact that the the, the audits and the investigations were completely random. We found very little information to to suggest that um, those specific people were simply audited because of their conduct. In many cases, there was not much grounds for even uh, a review of the claims, yet practitioners went through incredible amounts of, of forensic work that eventually leads to them being, even if even if there's no evidence against them, they still found themselves being requested to to sign acknowledgement of debts with, with medical schemes. Some people get slapped with a 2.5 million rand repayment. The, the, the amounts are deferred to, depending on the practice, but how they quantify that amount, nobody knows. They, they, they use some internal calculation and then they say, you know what, this is what we've d- determined based on these two or three inaccuracies that we picked up, whether they're administrative, intentional, fraud, or just uh, clerical error, we believe you owe us an X amount of money. And for years, practitioners have just been signing that because you need to be earning an income. And until that point, they freeze all payments and you have no access to, to income. Um, so a lot of people claim that they've been uh, coerced to sign these acknowledgements of debt because you get brought in with a team of forensic investigators. You don't know what's happening. They, 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 they use all sorts of intimidation tactics. And a lot of these uh, investigators are former SAPS and, you know, they, they, they tend to strong arm um, some of the practitioners and people ended up signing, and that was the only way that they could get some of their payments released. When we started interacting with practitioners, we started to realize that many of these cases were not even legitimate. Um, there were no complaints from patients. Um, there was no real fraud involved. Sometimes it was just billing errors, um, and there was no reason for so many people to be audited in such a short period of time. Some schemes claim uh, hundreds of millions of rands uh, are recovered through this forensic process that they, that they implement and through the clawbacks that they, that they uh, get people to sign. So once we started looking at it, we, as an association, we submitted uh, complaints to the Council for Medical Schemes, to the Board of Health Funders, um, we even took the matter through to the uh, Human Rights Commission, and eventually we got the ear of the minister, who then decided that let's look at this. Let's formally review these allegations, and let's see if there's merit to what people are saying. So they launched what is now uh, commonly referred to as the Section 59 inquiry, which is 
administered through the Council for Medical Schemes. There's a panel of three advocates that have been looking at cases and submissions from individuals, from organizations, from uh, health associations, as well as uh, they've allocated uh, time for uh, schemes to respond to some of these allegations. And overwhelmingly, um, if we had to exclude ourselves from this uh, topic, the voices that came out of other associations, the independent uh, practice uh, associations, um, the South African Medical Association, and all the other uh, societies that, uh, that, that represent health professionals, there seems to be an overwhelming pool of evidence that indicates that racial profiling definitely happens. The schemes deny this. The schemes say that um, they cannot racially profile people because they don't know people's names and surnames. They just refer to people via practice numbers, and the system automatically detects. Um, but when when we use data that all these associations have provided, um, you find that in, in, in most cases some of the societies have provided information that out of all the people in their their body that were audited, in some instances 100% were people of color. Um, even when it comes to um, the, the, the excuse that uh, practice numbers are used, at some point somebody sits with that file and makes a decision. And that person, whether it's in management, whether it's a forensic uh, investigator, those cases are handled by individuals. So the the entire practice number scenario tends to fall away when people have your name, your surname, your address, your email address, and also the lay of the land. If they've picked up your practice and the practice is in, in Soweto or in Chatsworth, you, you can almost safely guarantee that that practice is, is run by a person of color. And to date, um, there hasn't been a, a, a proper formal response from the, the schemes. Some of the schemes have deferred. Some of the schemes have referred to, uh, requested for uh, private um, interviews to be held. Um, so for now, it's still a waiting game. The, I think the inquiry was supposed to be concluded by November. I don't think we're anywhere near conclusion as yet, but uh, listening to all the evidence presented, it's going to be very difficult for the schemes to explain um, the, the clear evidence of racial bias. Josiah's helped me to understand this. We're talking about something that impacts on the very fabric of our constitution, and that's the fact that we a non-racial society. We came out in 1994 having been a country with legislated racial discrimination, the only country in the world with legislated racial discrimination, and we fight tooth and nail every day through the Bill of Rights, through the Human Rights Commission and Chapter 9 organizations to ensure that our right to equality is enshrined. You're now telling me that an inquiry has been taking place that is focusing on alleged racial profiling Yet I'm not seeing this in the mainstream media. I'm not hearing about this. I don't know about this. How come? Unfortunately, the media has been contacted. 
and uh, in many cases um the follow through from from media has been very very poor um whether it's the, the journalists decision or the the media houses decision as a whole but the the support in terms of the racial profiling has been pretty poor in terms of media coverage uh, whether it's, it's been al- alleged that uh, media houses will not risk losing advertising revenue because medical schemes spend a lot of money on advertising um but whether that's true or not whether we've we we've we've battled to have uh unbiased journalism in the country i can't speak for that but i can i can tell you now that very few journalists have been willing to run with this story we're chatting to Josias Naidu a healthcare activist about the state of healthcare in South Africa. We're going to take our last break of the day. When we come back, we're going to go off topic and talk a little bit about 2019 in review and what 2020 holds for us. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Tomorrow's New Year's Eve. We're about to go into 2020. And for me, it seems like a lot of the groundwork has been laid in 2019 for us to see action in 2020 in respect of fraud and corruption that unfortunately has consumed our country the past two decades. Just ask, as, as somebody that is an activist in the healthcare field and obviously takes note of other things happening within society, what are your thoughts going forward into 2020? I think 2020 is going to be very interesting here. We've we've got a lot of uh, heat turned on on politicians that are engaged in corrupt uh, activities. We've had uh, a lot of review in terms of the private sector and the the corruption in the health sector and in various other little sectors. But I think until we have a progressive stand from our politicians and our leaders, I think we, we're going to fight corruption very slowly. I think if we if we don't break the the, the, the rot that's already set in, we we will drag corruption into twenty twenty. Um we've we've proven it over the last few years that we can highlight fraud, waste, corruption and all sorts of mismanagements, but whether our leadership follows through in terms of uh, accountability and and resolving those issues, um, that's where we, we we seriously falling behind in terms of management of of corruption. But I think the the current um, leadership, especially in 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 Gauteng, Gauteng Department of Health, we've seen a huge change in how the Gauteng Department of Health is being run un, under MEC Bandela Masuku. Um, and if we can have leaders of that quality, if we have leaders of that dedication, I think 2020 we can definitely start to see restructuring within within our um, health departments and within uh, political departments as a whole. Justice Zondo recently stated that he wants an extension of the State Capture Commission of Inquiry because there actually hasn't been empirical evidence led to prove corruption's taken place. Now, I was, I wouldn't say in the fortunate position, but I was in the position to interview Angelo Agrizi earlier this year. I was the first to have an hour-long exclusive interview with him, 
and he admitted to perpetrating corrupt acts. Do you think that these commissions of inquiries that we've had, the one most notably being into the PIC and the other most notably being into state capture, have made a difference? And do you believe the authorities are acting quick enough on the information that's come to light at these inquiries? No. I think we're wasting a lot of time, honestly. I think uh, some of the people implicated in some of the issues with the PIC have subsequently still been awarded more funds and 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 still been involved in in business relationships with the PIC after being identified as potential fraudsters. Now, if we continue to do things like that, we're not going to beat corruption. Um, and even with with the inquiries, inquiries need to to be conducted. We need to get all the evidence and the information as quick as possible, and we need to act on it. If we're going to wait for people to leave the country, if we're going to wait for people to to change and retract statements, we're never going to to progress. I don't think in in all the time of the the, the Zono Commission, we've been able to pin down individuals that we can physically take to court and hold accountable as yet. There's a there's a lot of talk about it, but whether we'll we'll truly the few of the ESCOM people that have been been taken, yeah, but I think again the the foot soldiers take the fall first and the, the real guys that are controlling the corruption haven't been haven't been phased as yet. For somebody who has a very young daughter, what are your views on South Africa? What are your views on her future in South Africa? We have a lot of potential. As a country, we have a lot of potential. If we can, if we can minimize corruption, if we can restructure our education system, if we can um, reduce crime, and if we can create a little bit more of what we affectionately call the Rainbow Nation, but we're yet to see the Rainbow Nation in action. I think if if we can not focus on just winning the World Cup and, and the emotions that center around isolated incidences, we can probably see change. I think we have a lot of potential for changing this country for the next generation, but we need people who are going to actively speak out against corruption. We need people who are going to actively um, speak out against racism. We're going to need people who are actively going to stand up against uh, women abuse and uh, all the gender inequalities that we see in this country. And I think we've 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 got potential. We've got a lot of young leaders that are that are starting to voice their, themselves. We just need some of the existing leaders who may not necessarily want to relinquish power to 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 see the potential in the in the new generation and allow people to to come into power, come into the government and start driving change. And if we, we start to do that, I think we can really change the, the path that this country is going in. Just ask for our listeners that are involved in the healthcare practitioner industry, the organization that you represent, how do they get hold of it? Um, you can go onto our website. It's www.nhcpa-sa.com. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, National Healthcare Professionals Association. You can follow us on Twitter at NHCPA2. Um, or you can just get in touch with me and I'll put people through. 
We'll be uploading Josias' contact details on our group Confidential Brief Radio Show. Josias, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chad. And to my listeners, thank you for enduring me today, especially sounding the way I do. Hopefully, I'll still have a voice tomorrow. And thank you for for tuning in. Next year, it's going to be eight years that you've tuned into the show. And I thank each and every one of you. I wish you all a wonderful um, 2020, um, time with your families, and a positive outlook for our wonderful, beautiful South Africa. You've been listening to Confidential Brief. I'll be back same time, same place next week.